I wanted to report on the earring. The good news is we found the earring, but the diamond is missing. So that's the good news. We've got it. But no diamond. Don't expect to find a diamond. It's like the guy who went to the store, called the store and says, yes, uh, he called the store up. He said, I left my wallet there. And the guy said, yeah, are you John Smith? He said, yeah. He said, listen, we found your wallet, but the 150 bucks that was in it isn't there anymore. <laughs> oh, gosh. Only in Miami. Or maybe in Indiana, right, Dave? You've been there before. Dave? Dave's not listening. <laughs> I wanted to say thank you for everyone who came out yesterday. We had a great time. It really came together well, and... Um, what I was so excited about was the spirit, um, just of everyone who was there, the eagerness to serve and to really become the church that God wants us to be. So that was a really exciting day. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to 1 Corinthians 15. And look at verse 12 through 19. That's going to be our, at least our main passage for the day. We're going to get there eventually. You should always be concerned when a pastor says we'll get to the Bible eventually. <laughs> but in this case, it's okay. The next two weeks I wanted to, to take and I wanted to break into two parts. Next week we should expect, a, I, I hope that many of you are going to be inviting people to our church next week, as I hope every week, but Easter is certainly a great opportunity for Christian or for people who don't normally go to church to come to church on that day. It's a wonderful opportunity to invite people and to see them here. So I wanted to encourage you to make sure you invite people next week. What we are going to be, and, and pray with me this week. I am going to try and lay out as simple as I know how what the gospel of salvation truly is in the Bible. Pray with me that as well as, as any pastor can articulate the gospel of salvation, pray with me that the Holy Spirit changes hearts. It took the Lord to open up Lydia's heart to receive the words of Paul. Had the Lord not opened her heart, she would have never received the words of Paul. Scholars are in agreement. Atheistic scholar, I just heard a, a former atheistic scholar, Anthony Flew, before he died, he wrote a book called uh, God Exists. And in that last part, in one of the appendices, he said, the, there was no mind. He said, the mind of Jesus and the mind of the Apostle Paul was the greatest mind. He called omniscience that, the, that any religion had ever seen. He used the word omniscience. And that is a big, big-time statement from a world-renowned, former world-renowned scholar. But it doesn't matter what we say if the Holy Spirit's not involved. And in our witness and in our opportunity this week and in this season of Easter, take this time to pray that the Holy Spirit would change hearts. See yourself as the tool. Remember what Paul said there are some who sow and others who water. But the only thing we can do is sit and watch, right? It is God who gives the growth. We pray for trees that grow and bear fruit. And that's in God's hands. But you have a job to do. So that is our challenge this week. Let's invite people to church. Let's offer an opportunity to explain the gospel and let's pray that God will change hearts. This morning, the sermon I wanted to focus on, though, is a preparation, in preparation for next week's presentation of the gospel. It is an apologetic for the resurrection. An apologetic is a defense in favor of the Christian faith against adversaries of the Christian faith. A polemic is an internal discussion about factors that Christians might disagree on, but an apologetic is a defense of the Christian faith against non-believers' attacks. 
in our postmodern, post-Christian world, Easter has become a season for skepticism. Not that the resurrection of a dead man has ever been, nor, nor either will be, ever will be, I should say, in vogue, but the wave of scholarship seems to be, at least today, keenly preoccupied with disproving the faith of Christians, especially with what the world sees as a superstitious myth of the resurrection. It's as if the world enjoys watching our faith be destroyed. In case you haven't read the Bible, that's exactly what the devil enjoys watching. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says in his book, Atheism Remix, that we have moved in our country from a time in which it was impossible not to believe through a time where it was possible to not believe to a time where it is impossible to believe, at least among the elites. In fact, he goes on to say, it is even as some elites and some, when I say elites, I mean the, the main scholars in our, in, our, uh, ac, uh, in our universities and in our college, in our colleges and our world thinkers and on Facebook, our major scholars would even question not that it is impossible to believe, that it is even dangerous to believe. They have even said that to teach your children truths of the Bible is tantamount to child abuse. That's, that is the temperature of our culture today. Lee Strobel says, the Jesus of historic Christianity has come under increasingly fierce attack. From college classrooms to best-selling books, even to the internet, scholars and popular writers are seeking to debunk the traditional Christ. They're capturing the public's imagination, he goes on. They're capturing the public's imagination with radical new portraits of Jesus that bear scant resemblance to the time-honored picture embraced by the church. The internet has become, and you've heard me say this before, it's become a cesspool of information. Time-honored traditions of Christianity and well-refuted atheistic claims Within centuries, centuries and centuries have been refuted and they've been brought back out onto the forefront because of the internet. Anybody can start a website with any crazy theory they want. And so things that the Christian faith has known about for centuries and has responded to and has articulately defended the faith are now being brought back into the forefront and unsuspecting believers and unsuspecting seekers are being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. The times then are different now. If you haven't sensed the change, try serving God more eagerly or more fervently and you'll soon learn true the words of your Lord, the servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. Put up on your Facebook wall some kind of counterintuitive cultural claim. That was good. That was alliterative. Counterintuitive cultural claim that is Christian and see the venom of the world. Feel it. Some of you say, I, I'm never persecuted for my faith. You might not be sharing it, at least correctly. Because Jesus said, if you're his disciples, you're going to be persecuted. Right? So let's not start this Christian faith on false pretenses. This is not a love session with the world. The world hates us. Good. Because if the world hates us, that means the Father loves us. Peruse the magazine stand or the TV guide during the months of March and April and try and count how many was Jesus really who we think he was specials and articles are really out there. Go to, go to I want to challenge you, go to his, I don't even know, I, don't, I, I haven't even looked at the TV guide. Go to National Geographic, 
Go to Discovery, go to the History Channel, and watch this week. Watch how many. Was Jesus really who we think he was? Shows are going to be there. You walk through Publix this week, or Winn-Dixie, or wherever you shop, or Walmart. When you walk through, you have plenty of time standing in a Walmart line. <laughs> you, you might be able to finish the whole magazine if you're at Walmart. When you walk through that line, just look at the magazines and look at the names. Usually, it says Jesus with a question mark. None of these articles or TV shows, do not be surprised, but none of these articles or TV shows ever end up saying, this is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. None of them end that way. Don't be shocked. They will end with a question mark about who Jesus is. But the Bible ends with a period. Instead, these things are written to tear down our faith and to discourage us from following the Savior of our souls. These are the mercenaries of the devil, and they've been enlisted to snatch up the seed that's been sown along the path, that is the seed of the gospel, from ever taking root in people's lives and to even suppress the morale of his people. This morning, I want to give an apologetic for the resurrection, an apologetic is a defense of the Christian faith against the attacks of our adversaries. Maybe some of you have read one of these magazines already or watched one of these programs already or heard a school lecture already or have had a conversation on the internet or at the water cooler about who Jesus was. Maybe you've already had that conversation. Maybe you didn't know how to respond to the attacks levied against your faith. Maybe you were speechless when someone questioned your faith. My goal this morning is to encourage you in your faith. And in doing so, make you an encouragement to others. As Luke wrote to Theophilus, this sermon is so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a deep task, a huge task, a task that one morning is not enough. It's going to require further research. It's going to take a life, our entire lives, to devote ourselves to knowing you more. But what better thing is there to do than to know you more? We're already saved. If we have received Jesus, Lord God, we are already saved. Let us begin then to learn God greater and for the rest of our lives to seek to know you. Those who don't know you, Lord God, I pray this morning that they would be challenged to receive you. Your son put a line in the sand between the world and himself. If we know the son, then we know the father. It makes no difference what a person says about God if they have not the Son. Lord Jesus, let Northwest Baptist Church be a church that proclaims the exclusivity of the Son so that we might too have the Father and the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say before I get started that this is is not an exhaustive look at all of these these different attacks and these topics. There are many books out there. Uh, Anything written by Lee Strobel, I would recommend. His case for books, Lee Strobel, that's L-E-E-S-T-R-O-B-E-L. His case for faith, case for Christ, case for a creator, case for the real Jesus, especially that one, the case for the real Jesus, I highly recommend. They're introductory level books. And for those of you who have iPads, you could have it in five seconds if you want it. But I strongly encourage you to read up on these topics. Christian, don't miss the opportunity you have this week. I want to talk this morning about four common attacks on Jesus that you're going to see during this Easter season. You're going to see an attack on his existence. You're going to see an attack on his word. 
You're going to see an attack on his deeds, and finally, you're going to see an attack on his resurrection. Let's look first at the attack against his existence. Believe it or not, that is a real attack. Some have tried to attack the very notion that Jesus was a real historical person. I have heard people say this. When I found out that, uh, this is true, when I found out that Santa Claus wasn't real, I wondered if everything that I had heard about Jesus was the exact same way. Wow. Jesus and Santa Claus? You say, do people really think that Jesus is like a leprechaun or like Santa Claus or like a unicorn or like Bigfoot? New York Times best-selling author Richard Dawkins in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, says this. It is possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all. As has been done by, among others, Professor G.A. Wells of the University of London in a number of books, including Did Jesus ever exist so he is saying it is possible to question whether jesus was ever a historical figure that there was a man named jesus of nazareth and that he really walked this earth the way abe lincoln walked this earth the way that napoleon walked this earth he is questioning that jesus is not like those men but he's more in line with leprechauns and fairies and unicorns One Christian scholar even adds to this. He says, and supports the claim that some people question his existence. He says, when it comes to evaluating Jesus, popular Christian apologists often appeal to what they call the triad option proposed by C.S. Lewis half a century ago. C.S. Lewis famously said in a, in a list of, in his book, Mere Christianity, that Jesus you have to make up your mind on one of three things about Jesus, that he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Craig Evans, Christian scholar, who you are probably going to see on some of these, these shows this week if you watch him, who I support and love very much, says there's actually a fourth option today, and that is legend. Was Jesus a legend? Not real, kind of like King Arthur. So we have to answer this question for ourselves especially. Do we believe in a historical Jesus? When we open the Bible and we read the Gospels, do we believe that those actually took place 2,000 years ago? And that a Jewish man from Galilee walked this earth. His name was Jesus and many people followed him. Jesus of Nazareth. Many people will question whether Jesus is the Christ, but this is slightly different. They are questioning whether there was ever a Jesus of Nazareth. One scholar, N.T. Wright, says this. He says, the evidence for Jesus is so massive that as a historian, I want to say that we've got almost as much good evidence for Jesus as for anyone in the ancient world. Obviously, there are some characters from the ancient world for whom we have statues and inscriptions. On the other hand, we have statues of gods and goddesses in the ancient world too. And so you can never quite be sure. But in Jesus' case, the evidence all points firmly back to the existence of this great figure during the 20s and 30s of the first century. And the evidence fits so well that what we know of Judaism of that period that I think there are hardly any historians today. In fact, I don't know of any historians today who doubt the existence of Jesus. There's one man called G.A. Wells, the same man that Dawkins mentioned in his book, is the only one who has made much of it recently, but no Jewish, no Christian, no atheist, no agnostic scholar has ever taken him seriously. 
It is quite clear that, in fact, Jesus is very, very well-documented character of real history. So I think the question can be put to rest. I just want to add one thing to this. We have other reasons to believe that Jesus existed just like any other historical figure. Number one, the Gospels are ancient biographies. The Gospels are not like, someone would say, well, it's kind of like when you, you read about the stories of the gods of, of Egypt. When you read the Gospels, those bad boys are telling history. Look at the introductory chapter, if you have your Bibles, really quickly. Look at the introductory chapter to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And you tell me if Luke's trying to tell you a fairy tale about a man. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses. That means the eyeballs in their skull saw what was going on. And ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Much more than that, when Luke's gospel is put against the scrutiny of scholars, it so oftentimes is shown to be better than most of even the Roman historians concerning dates and times, weights and measures, places and persons. Luke is a historian of the first century writing a history about a real person named Jesus. Now whether you want to decide that he's Jesus, whether he's just Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Christ, now it's going to be a big deal for salvation. But put to rest this notion, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Furthermore, what about the early church? The existence of the early church. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on in the sermon. I want to look at attack two. The second attack you're going to see this week is going to be this one. And this one's very common. It's the attack against his word. Okay, so the first one didn't work. Let's try this one. This is a common attack that atheists use to create doubt or to stir doubt in our hearts concerning the scriptures. The object of this attack is to undermine the foundation of our faith, namely the Bible. Christianity is a textual religion. It bases its claims in a book. And without the sacred text and the certainty of that sacred text, namely the Bible, there is no ultimate standard of belief, no standard of our faith, and no direction for Christian practice. If we don't have the Bible, we don't have our faith. That's it. Everything that we know about God is within these pages. And you better hold fast to that. Because men and charlatans all around this world are coming to you and telling you that God speaks through them and they manipulate minds and they manipulate wallets and they manipulate wives. Wives and wallets are what they're after. And we have it going on in our very city. Because we have not fixed ourselves as people of the book. This is our final standard in faith and truth. And if they attack this foundation, if you're not certain of this, you can't even be certain of your faith. Richard Dawkins, again... I just have to quote him because this was such a good quote. There are others, and I'm going to quote one other, but this quote, he's such a jerk. I don't know what else to say about that. You say, that's not very Christian. God forgive me. This guy's a jerk. <laughs> Listen to what he says. Gosh. The Da Vinci Code is exactly like the four Gospels of the New Testament. 
fabricated from start to finish, invented, made-up fiction. The only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is that the four Gospels are ancient fiction and the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction. (laughs) He loves to really get at us. But really nobody takes him serious on that. Unfortunately, that's not true. Unfortunately, people do. But listen to what one scholar, a more, a much more credible threat, Bart Ehrman, in his New York Times bestseller, Misquoting Jesus, says. How does it help us, says Ehrman, to say that the Bible is the inerrant word of God if in fact we don't have the words that God inerrantly laid or inerrantly put on the hearts and inspired but only the words copied by the scribes, sometimes correctly, but sometimes, many times, incorrectly. That's a New York Times best-selling book, and that is in the hands of people everywhere. Now, this is what he's saying, in case we're not sure about this. He is saying, very truly, that the Bible you hold in your lap did not descend from heaven, leather-bound, Gold trim with angels singing and a dove bringing it in a sack from God to you and lay it on your bed. And by the way, he is very, very right. You need to know this. This book right here that you hold in your hand is a great privilege. You hold this book in your hand because men and women were willing to give their life for it. Do you understand that? Next time someone says to you, the Bible was written by men and translated by men, you say, yes, it was. Praise God. How could a man knowingly go and have this book translated into the lingua franca, knowing that if it gets found out that this book is being printed, he will lose his hands and his eyeballs? Who would do that? This is a book translated by men. Praise God. And their blood is on every page. The very fact that you and I sit in this church house in the year of our Lord 2016 and speak a common language is due to the belief that people should have this book in their hands. And that was by men. Do not overlook that great sacrifice that they made to get you this book. Wycliffe was burned at the stake for getting this book to us. So if this is the question, that the book you have cannot be trusted, now what do we do with our faith? So go back to our attack. That what you have cannot be trusted. When you open up the book and you read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he is saying that those words are not always trustworthy. I want to respond using Daniel Wallace's response to this one attack. This is a fabulous man. Daniel Wallace is a professor who works at He works at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's a guy who had viral encephalitis. Before he got viral encephalitis and lost his memory, he had written the standard Greek textbook for Greek syntax and for the Greek translation of New Testament Greek. So before he lost his memory, he wrote that book. He relearned Greek from the book he wrote before he lost his memory. God gave that man viral encephalitis just to show off. Is that awesome? Could you imagine, re- could you imagine educating yourself from the past? That's amazing. That's an amazing story. He tells the story. I want to give you what he says about the trustworthiness of the book you hold in your hand. Let me just go down these bullet points. 5,700 Greek copies of the New Testament are in extent, and 60 of those have the entire New Testament in them. 5,700. 5, when, we we when we were in Ireland last, week, or last year or two years ago, 
Ireland has a very prominent library there called the Chester Beatty Library. Chester Beatty was an antiquities collector, and he came across some of these ancient texts, and he has one of the oldest collection of books of the Bible, and I got to sit there, and when you walk into this room, it's dark, it's very dark, it was kind of warm, and there were these nice lights, and there's this Gregorian chant, and it really creates a holy experience as you sit there and you look at these pieces of parchment that date from the second century that say right there in an English translation next to it, because I can barely read Greek, especially Greek that is 2,000 years old on a piece of paper that's basically an old napkin that they found in a trash heap reading the very words that you and I have today from 2,000 years ago. Some pieces that are no bigger than my hand that have the gospel on them and they date from 150 to 125 AD. And they're right there. And you can look at them and they don't even have all of them on display because they're so brittle. The fact that we have any of these Greek manuscripts is nothing short of miraculous. Those manuscripts typically they are gone. They should be gone because they're brittle. We have 5,700 of those and 60 of them have the entire New Testament. 10,000 Latin, 15,000 Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, and Georgian. So we have a total of 30,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That's of the New Testament. One million New Testament quotations from the church fathers alone. That's to say that if all we had were the writings of the church father, we would be able to take the writings of the church fathers and reconstruct the New Testament with 95% accuracy because they quoted the New Testament over one million times. If we had no manuscripts, we'd be able to go to the church fathers and have our New Testament. Isn't that cool? We have nearly 50 manuscripts from the first three centuries of the church alone. I just told you about some. Some that may date as early as the first century. Compare this, though, to the average Greek author who has fewer than 20 copies, fewer than 20 copies of his work still in existence, and they come no sooner than 500 to 1,000 years later. Yet when you go into your Greek class at FIU and you open up Iliad and the Odyssey, no one questions whether you can trust it. 20 compared to 30,000. Now what acts are they trying to grind? They are trying to chop the head off and they know it's this book. Well then they say, well okay, so we've got all these manuscripts Bart will say, but you've got variants. You've got variations in them. And he says in his book, you got about between 200 to 400,000 variations. Well, Wallace responds. Here's Wallace's response to the variations. Word placement and spelling are by far and away the most common variants. In fact, 70 to 80% of those 400 alleged 400,000 variations are textual variants that are spelling difference that can't even be translated into English and have zero impact on meaning. So 80% of 400,000. I think that's 300,000? No, it's less, right? 275, 250. I'm, I'm a pastor, not a mathematician. Where are my mathematicians? What's 80% of, of 400,000, Miss White? 320,000, yes. <laughs> it's more. 320,000 of those are n- nothing but spelling errors or differences, I should say. Because, by the way, not all spelling differences are errors, are they? No. Then there's nonsense errors. Then there's synonyms, and synonyms aren't errors, but they're called variants. Word order variations 
are very common in Greek. In fact, Wallace says there are 16 ways to say Jesus loves Paul. 16 different ways, yet every single one of those is considered to be a variant. And the meaning is not changed one bit. What we care about, though, when we go to the Bible is do we understand the meaning, right? It is the meaning we are after. If I, I remember one day to prove this point to my students, I wrote on the whiteboard, class is canceled next week, and I, I misspelled every word. Every one of them knew what I was talking about, didn't they? <laughs> oh, class is canceled next week? And we had some in, there who were, some in there who were really had been reading the internet, and you know they know everything. Teenagers already know everything, now they have the internet. And they started to show, well, you know, they were saying, what about those variants? And I put that up on the board, and they said, well, we understand what you mean. And I said, exactly. What are you fighting over? Listen to this. This is his final point on this. No cardinal or essential doctrine of the Bible is altered by any textual variant that has the plausibility of going back to the original. Not one. You can trust that the word you have in your hands is trustworthy and tells you what's there. Let's look at the third attack, his deeds. His deeds, people attacked his deeds. And specifically, we mean miracles. And this is the assumption of what many call philosophical naturalism, which is the assumption that no miracle could ever happen. Everything that happens must happen naturalistically, according to this worldview. If it's true, it happens according to the laws of nature. So miracles are ruled out of hand before you ever even question whether Jesus turned water into wine or walked on water or rose from the dead because philosophical naturalism says miracles are impossible. There is no supernatural reality. So the difference between us and the world, especially the philosophical naturalist, is this. We believe that reality is made up of supernature and nature. A reality outside or beyond the physical realm. Whereas the naturalist believes that only reality, all reality is only physical. So that the mind and the body are one and the same. We don't believe that. We as Christians believe that the mind and the body are separate but that they work together, that there is a spiritual component to man because God has made us both physical flesh and spirit. So we deny this out of hand and of course we believe in a God who has created the universe from nothing. We know this, I wanna deal with this one real quick. We know this for a fact, miracles are possible and one miracle, at least one miracle, has happened. It is a guarantee. Some of you say amen to miracles, right? We know, I heard some of you say, we know miracles happen, but I wanna give you a guarantee, one you cannot undermine, and it's this. The very fact that you and I are sitting here right now talking is evidence that a miracle happened. You only have two options on this. Either God created the universe from nothing or everything came from nothing. The second one is more miraculous than the first. By definition, nothing is no thing. Well, energy. Nope, that's something. Well, space. Nope, that's something. Well, a black hole. That's something. Well, a multiple universe generator, well, that's something, and even that has to start somewhere. You cannot have an infinite regression of causes. You can't go back infinitely. You can't do it. It's not possible. You can go forward infinitely, but not backwards. So when we walk this walk all the way back to the beginning of the universe, whether it's 6,000 years or 4,000 years or 4 billion years or 20 billion years, when we get all the way back there, whatever the time frame is, on the other side of it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You got to choose one or the other. You don't get an option. Either God made everything 
from nothing, or this all happened from nothing. So we know for a fact miracles happen. But the last attack is the big one. The first three attacks are foundational, and that's why they're important. If any of the first three attacks are successful, there could be no sense in even looking at the fourth, which is the attack against his resurrection. If Jesus didn't exist, why are we even talking about a resurrection, right? If the Bible can't be trusted, then why are we even talking about a resurrection? And if miracles are impossible, then no resurrection is possible. But so once, the, once those three are found wanting, they finally move to the fourth, and this is the one I want to look at as we conclude. The resurrection is the very hope of our faith. Every one of us today who confesses Jesus as the only way does so in the hope of eternal life, right? We hope that one day when our bodies rot and when we're in a tomb, or not in a tomb, when we're in an urn or in a, in a casket or in a wall slider, whatever those things are, with the bug zappers, that's so gross. <laughs> that one day those bodies, however God does it, are going to be new bodies recreated. That's our hope. You don't hope in that. What are you even, what are you even talking about with Jesus? You're not hoping in a bodily resur resurrection? You're going to have a new body? I'm hoping I'm going to be able to play like LeBron James. Well, <laughs> not after last night. <laughs> what? <laughs> How many of you saw him sitting in that fourth quarter? Go heat. All right, two minutes. Here we go. We're getting into it. But we're going to have new bodies. That's a good hope. That's the hope of Christians. Christian, this reality is so foundational to your faith that to doubt it is to tug at the linchpin of everything you believe. Watch what Paul says. Now you have your passage. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If that's what we preach, if the Bible says that, none of us can deny it. Not and still hold to our faith, as Paul is going to say. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The word there is kinos, and it means empty. It means it, there's nothing in it. There's nothing in it. It's like a piggy bank with no money in it. Or like some of our bank accounts with no money in it. What do we even have it for? That's what, it, that's what the word means. It's empty. You don't have anything in it. It's got a thin veneer on the inside, nothing. Your faith is empty if the resurrection didn't happen. He goes on. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Jesus from the dead, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is again futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that means died, have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You don't believe in a resurrection why would anybody be a Christian if they didn't believe in the resurrection? You say it's the best life to live. Really? Tell that to Jesus as they were sticking six-inch nails through his wrist. Tell that to the, the husbands and fathers and little children that were sewn up in the rotting carcasses of animals and thrown in the midst of a coliseum and devoured by lions and tigers and bears for show. 
Tell that to the men and women who were thrown into gulags and beaten and even killed. And they were, they were completely mistreated. Losing eyesight, even losing their eyes and hands and mutilated. All for the sake of Christ. This ain't the best way to live. If there's no resurrection, we're above all men to be pitied. Because we've given our life to a man who didn't raise. That's how serious this challenge is. I want to look really quickly. Here's why we can believe in the resurrection. And I'm going along the line of, of William Lane Craig's main arguments. Really quickly. Number one, there was an empty tomb. Matthew 28, 12. No one can deny this. It says, and when they assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Why would the adversaries of the, of the disciples say that the disciples stole the body if the tomb wasn't empty? So we all got to have that in agreement. There was an empty tomb. And next week when we celebrate it, we know why. But nobody can deny an empty tomb. Furthermore, this is easily thwarted by simply saying, just go to the tomb where we laid him. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. No, they knew where it was. Everyone knew where it was. So that won't work. Number two, Jesus had post-mortem appearances. People saw him. Well, maybe they were all hallucinating. 500 at one time having the same hallucination? Listen, you can't even get that at UltraFest. You think you're going to get that then? For the older people, that's a thing that goes on. For, for, the, for those who are over the age of 30, which would be me, that's why you were so cranky sitting in traffic on 95 this past weekend. There's a bunch of kids down there raving to nonsense music. Dum, 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 dum. Five hundred people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. Well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just he came up to him. He was crucified on Friday and on Sunday. They were all believers now because this guy who just fainted on the cross is now impressing them. He'd been stabbed through to his heart. That's why blood and water came out. His back was laid bare so badly that his body part, they say that you could see the blood vessels come out of their, their skin when they would whip their back. That's part of the torture of the crucifixion because when they're struggling for air, they're pushing up on that rugged cross and they're grinding that bloody back that's been laid bare and ripped open and bleeding. Just think about it right now because he did it for you. And as he grinded on that cross for you, bleeding profusely, crown of thorns shoved down on his head, blood everywhere, naked, battered and bruised, that's going to convince people of a resurrection? No. That doesn't convince anyone, especially a coward who just several days before said, I don't know who this man is. No, 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 you're one of those guys. No, I'm not him. No, you're one of Jesus' followers. No, I'm not. Cock crowed. He denies Christ three times. Now, how do you explain that he stands before the Sanhedrin just a couple days later saying, do with us what you want. But as for us, we can do nothing but speak his name. How is a coward turned into a courageous person? By a resurrection. The last point is this. The fact that you and I, red and yellow, black and white, sit here, 2016, is evidence that Jesus raised from the dead. We sit here upon the shoulders of men and women who died believing that what they saw was a raised man from the dead, empowered by his Holy Spirit to preach the gospel and to tell others that you too, if you believe in this man, you too will raise. 2,000 years later, these attacks are no attacks. Many people out there are going to challenge you over the next several weeks concerning 
your belief about Jesus and who he was and who he is. Many people are going to be discouraged, not just by the attacks of secularism, but by the silence from believers. There is a great opportunity here. Believer, do you see the opportunity you have to be the balm to an ailing faith? Believer, do you see how knowing how to respond to these attacks can make you a safe haven in the midst of a spiritual war? Believer, do you love people and want to see them love Jesus? Start the conversation this week. Ask what Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say Jesus is? And be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for men. And God, we just thank you for men and women who have answered these questions. When I was a doubting college student, you threw these men into my life. And they gave me hope. And they were great, great refuges in a great spiritual warfare that was going on in my life at the time. I just want to say thank you for these men. They're a gift, God. Thank you for these great men. I'm indebted to them, God. Lord, let us take this beautiful gift that you've given us and all of their works and read them and become a helper to the faith of others because ultimately, God, we want to see people raised from the dead on that day when you return. That's our hope. We thank you, God. I pray next week, Lord Jesus, that people would be saved. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would change hearts. You would speak through us. That men and women would repent of their sins and follow the only name that is above every name, the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you. Be with our church. Amen.